0: Before we begin, this is a podcast about terrorism, which means we do talk about acts of terror and extreme violence, sometimes in quite a lot of detail. So you might find some of the following material upsetting. Hello, I'm Adnan Sawa. This is Taking Apart Terror. If you happen to have been walking down a particular Barcelona street in December 2013 you might have wondered what this crowd was all about. And if you'd stopped and maybe listened to the speakers, or, you know, if you didn't understand Spanish, had a look at the banners being held by his friends and family, you would have discovered that it was a rally to call for the safe return of journalist Mark Marginedas, who was kidnapped by Daesh in Syria that September.
1: Being kidnapped prevents the family from actually mourning. If you're killed, I mean, you mourn and you turn the page and that's it. But when you're kidnapped, there is
0: no rest. The kidnapping, and worse, of Western hostages was just one part of the Daesh media campaign. One way in which they made sure that the world was taking notice of them. And that's what we're talking about today. How does this group communicate? What messages are they trying to send? Or as we've asked this time, do terrorists use apps? I'm joined by three people who are extremely well-placed to give us some answers to these questions. Firstly, two of our regular panellists. Dr Shiraz Marr is Director of the International Centre for the Study of Radicalisation at King's College London. Hi, Shiraz. Hi, thanks for having me. Historian Omar Mohammed, who as the Mosul Eye kept the world informed of what was really happening in his home city during its occupation by Daesh and who is still working for its recovery. Welcome, Omar.
2: Hello again, Adnan.
0: And our specialist guest this time is Anne Cranan from Tech Against Terrorism, who is also the policy leader on TerrorismAnalytics.org, which archives propaganda as well as alerting social media outlets to terrorist content on their site. Anne. Thank you for joining us.
3: Hi, Adnan. Thanks very much for having me on.
0: Omar, I'm going to start with you because I cannot imagine that there is anyone who's got more of an insight into the way Daesh uses media, like especially social media, because that's how you took them on. Can you tell me what that was like?
2: The battleground was Facebook between Mosul and Daesh. You would see when we would post something against Daesh, one post would get the same comment from 2,000. user to make it difficult for the people to read it because people would be scared if they touch this kind of post as they see the comments of Daesh supporters. Most of the names, they were actually Western names. Most of them have no profile photos. What they do is they have a text with a link with a hashtag. The hashtag in itself is one of the weapons that Daesh used. And they just put it in the comments, like thousands of comments in less than a minute. I don't know where did, did they get all of these people from. The way that I managed this is by filtering the words. So we managed to get um, keywords and then we filter these keywords. So when there's a comment from Daesh supporters, it will be hidden, it will not show up. And this way we could manage the damage that they would Uh, Make on the post. There is a centralized chain of command in Daesh, especially when it comes to the media.
0: So, Anne, we've called this episode Do Terrorists Use Apps? And from what Omar is saying, and we probably knew this, of course they do.
3: I would say, though, that terrorist use of the internet or um, IS use of the internet goes beyond just social media or like apps. It's actually the internet as a whole that gets utilised. So the platforms we all know, so Telegram, WhatsApp, Instagram, are still being used. But what we have seen is as these companies have kind of taken action and really taken kind of ISIS content offline to a great extent, um, migration has happened to smaller tech companies, for example, content stores, more niche platforms that might be less accessible um, and because of these companies being smaller, um, unfortunately, the content is more likely to stay online because content doesn't always get moderated.
0: And what a funnel for these people to send their message to us. What is their brand? You know, what is what is Daesh's personality? What are they trying to present to the world?
3: In terms of the ISIS brand, I think the official media outlets really, I think, want to convey that they are a transnational organization, a global organization. And I think that has shifted since the peak of IS, this sort of um, focus on the different provinces of ISIS. And because the official media outlets always kind of um, report on all of these provinces collectively, the amount of propaganda or their output um, is still a lot. And I think that is what makes it quite frustrating when mainstream media is like, ISIS is defeated, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa, I would say that it's almost, well, beginning or spiraling, really.
0: Shiraz, Annie's talking about brand Daesh and this idea that they want to tell the world that they are everywhere. But what about some of their other messaging, things like, you know, putting out these horrific videos of hostages being beheaded? What are they trying to say with those?
4: I think the strategy of uh, publicising the ultra-violence, on the one hand, it, it was to intimidate their opponents. And you could see that with the remarkable speed by which Daesh was able to uh, take over Mosul. You know, people didn't want to be captured by this organization because everyone knew what fate uh, would await you. And you could see that in the extremely dramatic moment when uh, Daesh captured the uh, Jordanian pilot, Muad al kasasbeh who crash-landed into their territory and uh, Daesh put him in a cage and then burned him alive. And, you know, I know Omar is is uh, here with us uh, participating in this podcast, but that makes the, the, the kind of activism that individuals like him uh, all the more remarkable and brave. More broadly, ISIS was trying to create new history, right? They're saying, look, the old order is being overturned, and therefore, It's sought a strategy, in my opinion, of deliberate provocation. We're going to attack a symbol of your civilization, Christmas markets in Germany. We're going to attack churches, right? So it's designed to create maximum offense to drive this civilizational wedge between truth and falsehood.
0: Provocation and causing maximum offense. There are few things more provocative than stealing and torturing a human being. So kidnapping and publicly threatening and sometimes killing hostages became a well used weapon in the Daesh armory. Marc Marginedas was a veteran war correspondent working for the Spanish publication El Periodico when he was snatched in Hamma in western Syria in September 2013. He was initially held in a bombed out hospital in Aleppo in solitary confinement. Amongst the other things going through his mind at that time, what did he think his captors thought about him?
1: They hated me deeply. I tried to tell them, listen, I don't care about who you are. I don't care about the militias. I don't care about who is fighting who in this war. Basically what uh, I came here for is to tell my readers on the outside world the suffering of civilians. They didn't listen to me, of course. They were actually beating and torturing people and using electroshocks just outside my room. There were two guards who would enter my room And they did everything in their hand to kind of uh, inspire fear. For instance, I mean, uh, they wouldn't touch me. They would take me blindfolded to the restroom, holding a bar that I knew they were using uh, when they were beating prisoners in the corridor. It's very scary. You know, you're touching uh, instruments of torture. And basically they're trying to tell you, yes, you might end up like them. But remember, for instance, in the cell, there was a sort of a calendar of somebody who had been writing, you know, days. And, you know, all of a sudden after, I don't remember, maybe 40 days, he, you know, this calendar stopped. So I, I imagine, I said to myself, oh, this guy has been released. So if this guy has been released, I uh, could be released as well. What my mind refused to accept is that, you know, from time to time, I could hear his shots from the outside. People were being shot in that hospital. At that moment, my captors were actually deciding who I really was. If I was a spy or if I was a a journalist. Had they uh, thought that I was a spy, I would have ended like many other prisoners in that prison, you know, shot and, you know, buried somewhere. Basically, you keep saying to yourself, as long as I am alive, there is hope. There was one moment when I thought that all uh, hope was lost we were getting ready to be transferred from uh, Aleppo to Raqqa. We spent like three days uh, roaming in the desert. It was very tense because they kind of uh, repeated to us uh, many times the uh, prayer that a uh, Muslim needs to say before he dies. So, so we were being handcuffed in pairs. Now I remember I was being handcuffed to a uh, French hostage and I said to that French hostage, ça va être très difficile de survivre. This is going to be very difficult. We're not going to
0: make it. And you've been working on websites that are actually owned by terrorist organisations. Is that right?
3: Yeah, it is. And that makes it even more difficult because usually when we as an organization reach out to tech companies and say, hey, we found terrorist content on your platforms, then usually we get the response saying we'll take it down. But with these websites, evidently, we're not going to ask an ISIS admin to be like, hey, can you take that down? Um, so it really complicates things. And it's it's kind of these pro ISIS or supporter generated um, websites that really do have loads of archives of ISIS content. Um, these websites get promoted in other channels as well. So we call this co citation, where where basically it pops up on different tech platforms, and again it draws attention to these websites. Um, and at the moment, at Tech Against Terrorism, we're kind of leading an initiative to to come up with a strategy on how to how to deal with this, because we're not we're going to have to talk to infrastructure providers and also get governments to kind of acknowledge this and realize the issue is not just tech companies, but it's also you know terrorists are creative and ISIS is very much like leading this field.
2: That's the problem of the Daesh media, Adnan. Is not that just they are creative, is that, can we control the technology that is enabling Dash or not? I remember that I analyzed the attacks on the WordPress website, for example. You would see that the map of the unusual access to to the site, it's almost from everywhere. Of course, they are using VPNs, they are using all of the available technology. If we cannot control it, Dash will always find an opportunity And by the way, I am also following their propaganda on websites. It's not even a dark way. It's the normal websites, but you need to know how to get access to it. And there is like a full website of Daesh with full contents of terrorism. And?
3: I agree with Omar, it lives on like the normal web. ISIS content is not just on the dark web. You know, they are so good at adapting to uh, moderation and we've seen that they use what we think mirror platforms which is basically a platform that where if you upload a video, it will generate a link on like 30 different content stores. So you then have 30 URLs that 30 tech companies need to deal with if you want that video to be taken offline altogether. What is interesting to see is that sort of a content moderation avoidance technique that IS employs is kind of sanitizing their content. So, for example, there's a lot of Salafist content on Instagram that appears not to be Salafi Jihadi. But then when you look at the network of people behind that, there is actually still a lot of pro IS material on Instagram. Actually, this morning we found a particular piece of content, which is sort of a call for like designers, developers, translators editors media creators and also importantly um, people with OPSEC experience so this would be operational security so to make sure that if their propaganda does get out that they make sure that it lives on as long as they can so they give tips on you know how to avoid uh, content moderation tips on how to stay private and this is the complexity that we're dealing with
0: Shiraz we've talked a bit about what DICE was trying to say to its enemies you know, but this wasn't all about intimidation, was it? Who who else were they talking to?
4: A lot of the messaging was aimed at other Muslims, telling them, "Come and be part of this new khirafa, come and be part of this new state." And so there was a uh, quite deliberate attempt to disseminate these uh, extremely glossy, well-produced, almost filmic pieces of of propaganda. These videos featured children. These videos featured soft focus images of kids playing on the banks of the Euphrates. And it was a world away from the, the blood and gore that we sometimes associate with this. I'm, I'm thinking already of a, of a particularly dramatic piece of propaganda that the group disseminated called uh, Eid greetings from the land of the Khilafah. You know, this is designed to resonate emotionally with Muslims. But then once the cameraman leaves the mosque, he's meeting different foreign fighters who are there in Raqqa telling you about how um, incredible it is to experience Eid in the caliphate. So you have that on the one level. and This is the officially produced and sanctioned uh, propaganda. But the, the other side was also supremely important, which is from 2013 onwards, you have this flood of foreign fighters from the West traveling to Syria and Iraq who are all maintaining Twitter accounts, Instagram accounts, and so on. And what that means is that if I were a young man in his early 20s from Yorkshire, who is watching what's happening at that time in the Middle East, and I'm thinking, gosh, ISIS seems kind of exciting. I can find another 20-something from Yorkshire who's made the journey and speak peer to peer. We tend to think of these guys who join ideological movements as being highly ideological actors in and of themselves. They're not, they're young boys and girls who were asking their fellow peers questions like, mate, how did you break it to your mum once you got to Syria? What, what did you say to your uncle? You know can you get hair gel out there? Do I, should I bring lots of gel with me? You know, it's, the, the point is by, by being able to maintain a social media presence, particularly on mainstream platforms, what the fighters who had already gone were able to do was to lower the barriers to participation in incredibly high risk activism. You were normalizing the extraordinary. And that was an incredibly powerful thing in motivating others to go out there.
0: This message, this normalization of the extraordinary, seems to have been pretty effective. It enticed thousands of people from around the world to Syria and Iraq to join the cause. When his captors delivered Mark Marginedas to a house by the Euphrates in Raqqa, the good news was that he was no longer alone. He was with other Western hostages, including aid worker David Haynes, US journalist James Foley, and the photographer John Cantley. But the bad news was they had other housemates, four British men who had responded to this Daesh message. It was John Cantley who christened them the Beatles. The leader of the group became known as Jihadi John, one of Daesh's most brutal executioners. And for Mark, living with the Beatles was almost unbearable.
1: They kept coming on a daily basis. Torturing us physically and psychologically. I mean, that for instance, they would uh, punish a hostage. I mean, for nothing, we would be forced to stand up the entire night handcuffed. They would put us a camera, so uh, as long as there was electricity, they could uh, kind of uh, surveil our movements. Uh, We were forced to sleep handcuffed to uh, one of our colleagues in captivity. They tried to kind of create problems amongst us. And friends, remember one day they came, they chose a hostage. They brought the leaflets of of the dinner and they told him, you choose uh, four of your colleagues, they will be allowed to eat with you and the rest will watch. Uh, We were starving.
0: Eventually, though, it seemed like the situation had shifted.
1: I remember uh, Jihadi John entering the room and saying, "Marcus, Marcus, are you ready to go? It crossed my mind that I would be the first one to be shot. But at the same time, uh, Jihadi John asked everybody to write a letter that I would just uh, bring out to the outside world. If I was going to be shot, why asking the rest of the crowd you know, a letter? They asked me to go to the shower. They cut my beard because my beer was very long. And, you know, when I was put together in the car, I think uh, jihadism was in my right side, even though it was very clear that I was going to be released. He wanted to inspire fear, so he put a gun in my head. I think it was, you know, as John Cantley pointed out in a very intelligent way, he said to me, learning Islam with these people is like learning Christianity with the Gukus clan. About jihadism and the rest, they were crazy. They were psychopaths, got pleasure out of other people suffering. The Islamic State was basically Nazism under the name of uh, of Allah and the Holy Quran.
0: Learning about Islam with these people is like learning Christianity with the Ku Klux Klan. Jihadi John beheaded David Haynes and James Foley on camera and sent those videos around the world. John Cantley wasn't killed then, but no one knows what has happened to him. He has not been seen since 2016. And what do we do about this, especially when it comes to using social media, which everybody's got, but it's really hard to regulate it?
3: That is what makes this so difficult, right? Because the internet works for all of us and it also works for terrorist organisations. So how do we then counter terrorist use of the internet whilst not disrupting the internet for everyone else, which is a really difficult problem that we're you know, trying to, to work on. Obviously, it's such a complex problem that I think you need multiple solutions. And I think on the one hand, we need to make sure that You know that we build resilience against um, terrorist propaganda, not just IS propaganda. I think also during COVID nineteen, we've seen increasingly younger uh, children even being attracted to propaganda, uh, and that is just a really dangerous trend. So I think you know digital sort of literacy campaigns uh, are one potential solution. I think counter narratives are another. There is actually a very good counter narrative campaign on Instagram that, for example, then shows videos of people who've joined IS were disappointed with with joining IS and then you know trying to dissuade other people from joining. And one initiative by um, Tech Against Terrorism is also to say, like, the extreme content, so official content by designated organizations such as um, Daesh, it just, it needs to be taken offline. And um, what we do is that through the terrorist content analytics platform, we alert tech companies with terrorist content when we find it on their platforms. The majority of tech companies, I think there's a willingness to act.
0: Shiraz, from what Anne's been saying, Daesh spend a lot of time and energy on their communications. This is a real priority for them, isn't it?
4: I'll give you one one marker by which we can almost identify just how important sort of media dissemination has been to Daesh. If you recall, when the group was losing all of its territory, it retreated and retreated to one final pocket, which was Baghuz. Baghuz is in uh, Syria, and, and it was the last territorial holding of Daesh. It's completely besieged, and a standoff takes place for several days. And the situation inside Baghuz is incredibly desperate, right? Food is obviously very scarce. They're also being bombarded. So there's lots of casualties, just a deeply, deeply desperate situation. Even at that point, Daesh prioritized the filming of life inside Bahuz and then to have smuggled that footage out because there was no internet reception, even in in, in that hugely desperate moment of this last stand, Get a thumb drive out with this video content on it so that it can be disseminated to our supporters and followers. It was a message of defiance, a message of steadfast resolve. You may be beating us in the temporal sense, but look, God is with us. And, you know, the fact that we've lost our empire, well, you know, that's just a test from God. And we,
2: you know, we're going to stand firm and we'll be back. Just to agree with Shiraz, it's during the Battle of Mosul. I mean, while Daesh was being... Defeated on the ground with heavy bombings, yet you still get not only just a normal drone footage, no, it's a well moderated, well organized, well shooted drone footage of their suicide bombers, of their so called battles inside Mosul. They were making sure that these messages get out, get public, and it tells us a lot about the way Daesh see itself. And the way Daesh also uh, generated this concept of we are here to stay. Especially during the Battle of Mosul, they were planting seeds for something yet to come.
0: This is an organization that clearly understands the power of controlling their own narrative. They stop at nothing to get their message across, including using the lives and the horrific deaths of hostages. But the pleas of the crowd gathered on that Spanish street were eventually answered. In March 2014, almost six months after being kidnapped, Mark Margeneda stepped onto the tarmac of Barcelona airport. Jihadi John, whose real name was Mohammed Mwazi, was killed by a US drone in 2015. Mark says that right up to the end of their bizarre house share John tried to persuade him to convert to Islam. He didn't, although he remains deeply altered by his experience in other ways. One thing though hasn't been affected.
1: It hasn't changed my uh, vision about Islam. I have so many uh, Muslim friends and in general terms, I think my Muslim friends are far less uh, selfish, with much more sense of community than my European friends. I pray on a daily basis. I still pray in Arabic. I still pray in, in you know my, my Christian prayers. It helps me you know to deal with my life and to understand that there is also a purpose in everything. Before being captured, our family relations were not bad, but they were pretty non-existent. We would only gather for Christmas and, you know, basic holidays and, and that was it. And I remember, I said to myself, my sister, I'm sure that she was going to be so horrified and everything would be dealt with by my newspaper and, you know, my, my boss. And I actually was totally wrong. Actually, uh, my sister had a very, very strong role in my release. One of the reasons uh, of this uh, captivity is that uh, the relationship with my family has become very good.
0: Mark has made a documentary about his kidnapping, going back to Raqqa for the first time since his release. Was it traumatic seeing that place again?
1: Sorry if I disappoint you, but you know, I've been shocked. Places are not good or bad, it's people who make them good or bad. I mean, we are war journalists and uh, we do deal with death on a daily basis. I mean, of course, this, the, the kidnapping has affected me, but I wouldn't say it, it has traumatised me to the point of looking for another job. I had many demands of people offering a lot of money, posing a film or things like this. I always said, no, I'm a journalist. I'm doing this because it's a Global Coalition. And I feel there's a purpose about that, but you stop being a journalist and you become the story, and I don't want that.
0: So, and they do these terrible things. They flood the internet with their messaging. Is it all really about just frightening people? And, and more importantly, are they winning this propaganda war?
3: Excellent question. There is no agreed upon definition of terrorism, but I think they all mention fear, and I think fear mongering is essential to, to Daesh. I think though, it sometimes depends. I think on the local context, because I would say that you know, groups in sub-Saharan Africa that are actually like claiming territory. Uh, that is a goal in itself as well, right? So I think sometimes there's a there's a focus on saying, is it just about propaganda? Is it just about fear-mongering? Or do they have, you know, also political aims? And I would definitely say that it is both. Are they winning? I think no. Even though an enormous amount of, of foreign fighters joined IS, uh, the majority of people did not. Um, and I think also if we look at the amount of content that is, you know, Uh, what we consider normal content on the internet, that is also more than terrorist content.
0: You know, Daesh did bring this aspect of warfare, you know, and where they are putting their messages out, people like you, Omar, are putting your messages out. So this this digital fight is really um, interesting in terms of how to understand this organisation. So the final question is, what is the message that they want to get out now?
2: They are focusing on two things. One, this is a war and the war has many battles. They lost one, they say we will win the other. They are trying to protect their image among their supporters, who they were promised by Daesh itself that we are undefeatable. And the second is when they were focusing on recording videos in high quality during such kind of battles, intense battles, they are now using it. They are saying, look what the West did to you the West has destroyed you. Daesh brought peace and the West brought destruction. That's the narrative that they are trying to push right now.
0: Shiraz, do you agree with that? Are Daesh trying to just elongate their existence? What's the message that they're sending out now?
4: Its existence hasn't ceased. It continues to exist in some form. It does remain an insurgency capable of pulling off bloody attacks. The movement has always said that media is half of jihad. And so... Uh, whilst the movement exists in any shape or form, you will continue to see some degree of propaganda presence and digital presence. Just as they maintain their presence in that media space to try and whitewash some of their crimes, it will need people like Omar and others to keep reminding people of the grotesque
2: crimes against humanity that this organisation perpetrated. It's also the future battle against Daesh, not the military one, the intellectual battle is much more difficult than the one that took place in 2016-2017. The question is, are we prepared intellectually in our understanding? They know how to manipulate the narratives. We will never be able to control the technology, but we can at least control how the narrative is being produced. and. That comes from getting more voices from cities like Raqqa, Mosul, other cities were completely destroyed by terrorism to make them more visible, to put the narrative in the perspective of the people who suffered. I am one of them and I can easily look into the eyes of Daesh and tell them what they did.
0: I'd like to thank Ankranan, Shiraz Ma. Omar Mohammed and Mark marginedas for all their extraordinary insights into the way terror talks and the kinds of things it tries to say. Mark's documentary, Return to Raqqa, comes out this year. That's it for this edition of Taking Apart Terror. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and follow or subscribe so you get every episode, including the next one, when we look at the role of women in extremism and we ask, does terrorism have a gender? I'm Adnan Sawa. Until the next time, goodbye.